Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Banner Podcast, where birders talk birding. I've had big year birders on the podcast before. In case you don't remember, a big year is an effort by an individual to see as many different species of birds in a year as they can in a defined area. That area can be as small as your yard, maybe your city or your county or your state, or any state, or as big as the world, which Noah Stryker did several years ago, or maybe more well-known to birders in the United States, the ABA area. Now, there are two ABA areas now, the Continental ABA, which is the traditional American Birding Association area, that's North America, essentially north of the Mexico border, or the new ABA area, which includes Hawaii. Another area with recent attention is the lower 48 United States, doing a big year trying to find as many species as you can in the lower 48 U.S. states. Tammy and David McQuaid, talked about their year-after-year lower 48 efforts to see a lot of species on episode number 27. In other episodes, I talked with Dorian Anderson about his biking for the birds big year on episode number 5. Christian Hagenlocker on episode number 4 was one of several birders doing an ABA big year in 2016. Jason Vassallo and I talked about his ABA big year on episode 109. Maybe the craziest big year effort of people I've talked to was with John Patton Moss on episode number 77 when we talked about his ABA big year traveling on a unicycle. His effort was one of the early activities curtailed by the COVID pandemic, but talk about a crazy thing, trying to ride around the United States on a unicycle seeing birds. Lynn Barber is a state big year birder. She did big years, record-breaking big years in the two biggest U.S. states, Texas and Alaska. And we talk about that in episode number 79. Our Bruce Richardson talked about a year of birding in Australia, which he intentionally doesn't call a big year because he wasn't trying to see the maximum number of species. But it was a year of birding, which was really a big year. We ta- I talked with Raphael Finnamore about his King County big year birding in, on episode number 127. And maybe most relevant to this episode, I talked with Tiffany Kirsten about her lower 48 record-breaking big year uh, in episode number 122, that her big year was in 2021. Well, in that year, she saw 726 species in the lower 48 states, breaking the previous record by one species. But that record was not to hold for long. Victor and Ruben Stahl, well-known ABA birders from Tennessee, sat out on a lower 48 big year in 2022. I followed them on Facebook and eBird before incidentally running into them when I took Marion to see the red flank blue tail in Lake Forest Park, Washington on March 25th last year. It was cool to see how much fun they were having seeing and photographing this rarity, and Marion mentioned to them that if they needed a bed for a night to give us a call. It worked out for them, and they spent part of a night Obviously not a whole night for them. They couldn't stay in one place for a whole night. But they crashed early and got up at 3 a.m. after getting what they described as a much-needed shower and a few few hours sleep in a bed before they got up about 3 a.m. to head for a Westport Pelagic trip. Incidentally, I got up about the same time to head out on a Mason County big, big day with friends. I followed the course of the big year both on Facebook and on eBird, and uh, it was really fun to see the progress they made. I was hoping when the year finished that I could get them on the podcast, but they were reluctant because this was a new thing for them. They consider themselves not very tech-savvy, but I'm really glad they gave it a go. I think you'll agree that they just rocked it. They're good storytellers with a great story to tell. Help me welcome Victor and Ruben Stahl to the Bird Banter Podcast, episode number 145. Victor, Ruben, welcome to the Bird Banner Podcast. Thanks for doing this with me. 
Uh, hello, Ed. Good to hear from you again. We really uh, enjoyed meeting you in Washington when we were up there. It was really pretty fortuitous. Uh, as soon as I saw you guys show up at the Red Flank Blue Tail spot, uh, I said, these guys must be the Stoll brothers. Yeah, you know, it just, just kind of had that feeling, the great big camera and the two of you kind of uh, looking, you know, looking like you were, uh, you know, had been traveling a little bit. So <laughs> that was pretty fun. Anyway, uh, I'm going to uh, start by asking you guys a few questions. You just finished this spectacular lower 48 big year. And I, you know, it's almost unimaginable how much uh, effort and time you put into doing that. And you, you're you not new to big years. You had done an ABA big year in 2017, didn't you? Yeah, that's correct. We sure did. What got you guys started doing big years? What's your What was your incentive? What was your motivation? I've always loved birds since I was a little boy. And I think the same for Reuben. And our dad loved birds. Our older brothers liked birds. But none of them ever took it to the level that we have. But um, I guess with our love of travel, our love of nature and birds, it just came naturally that it developed into the highest level we could take it, the competition of, of big year birding. Yeah, high level for sure. I mean, just for uh, listeners, in 2017, you guys saw 775 species uh, in the ABA, continental ABA area. And that year you had 714 in the lower 48, which are just gigantic years. And then you did it all over again, just sticking to the lower 48 states uh, last year. Uh, how, how did you decide on a lower 48 big year? And and how did you come up with a strategy? I I learned from when when you stayed over at my place that evening and had dinner that you were very strategic this was not a oh chase a bird here and there sort of effort this was very you had thought it through very carefully well um we've been birding all, all over the u.s for quite a while and about two or three weeks before the year started before 2022 reuben brought the idea up to me that he wants to do a big year in the lower 48, because it's a more manageable area, would be less stressful and less expensive. And I just was thinking about it. I wasn't sure I was into it because I get really sick on boats. Oh. But um, I wanted to be a good brother, and I thought it did sound fun. And so I agreed to it. So we had a couple weeks of intensive planning. But we've got a lot of experience with finding, for sure, all the expected species in the lower 48, because we've been to all those places. We've got hot spots picked out. We, we've got friends in all the states that help us with information. So our grassroots setup is pretty good as far as having everything in place. But you're right, we did have, strategically, we had plans of being in the right place at the right time, being middle of April, being Florida, October, being California, knowing when each species is aware and organizing it to be there is a big part of it. For sure. It sounds like you did, you know, I, I envisioned Heck, only somebody with a bucket load of money you can fly all over the place and chase every bird as could do a big year. But you guys seemed like you managed uh, mostly driving and on a you know a not terribly unreasonable budget. We we spent we actually spent most of our big year this year just driving the car and living in the car, and we even slept in the car most of the year, and. Part of the reason we did that, besides being more affordable than buying plane tickets, expensive plane tickets all the time, is that it it actually frees you up a little more. It, it allows you to make spur-of-the-moment decisions, and you can decide to do a big trip that you had never even thought of yesterday. You can decide to do that in an hour, and you don't have to do 
all this logistical planning and lining up a rental car and and getting tickets to wherever, checking if flights are available. And sometimes you might, for example, you might be out in the mountains of Arizona and you might be chasing a bird for three days and you might not, you, you might've had return ticket. If you had a flight, you would have had it booked and you wouldn't have the opportunity of being there for three days. And then you might show up and a bird is there the first second you get there and you can see it, photograph it, it cooperates perfectly and you might be done in 15 minutes and then you're on to the next target, which the flexibility was very good. That was a big part of the reason that we preferred to do it from the car. And another reason is if you have to set up a tent, it takes time setting up. I mean, find a campsite, set up a tent. You, we did that a couple of times when we had extra time, but a lot of the time you don't have extra time. And it, it, in the morning, you have to let the tent dry off and get the dew off, and then you have to pack your tent. A lot of times you don't have that kind of time when you're doing a big year. And so all you do is you roll the windows down, you got fresh air, you find a parking spot. And it's not hard, Walmart parking lot or almost anywhere. We're not really scared of animals. We're not scared of getting mugged. I mean, you could, of course, but it doesn't happen much. So we just, we're pretty relaxed about where we pull over and sleep. And sometimes it goes down to way below freezing and you just crack the windows enough for fresh air and you pile on the pillows and you pile on the blankets and whatever you need to, need to do to get comfortable and you lay the seat all the way back. It's actually not nearly as bad as people think it is. Well, you, got, you guys are very tolerant for sure. I don't know if I could pull that off. <laughs> <laughs> Ruben, you're, yeah. you're the you're the photographer of the two, aren't you? I think you're the you're the uh, the brother I saw lugging this giant uh, giant uh, camera around. Victor is the one with the giant camera. Oh, Victor is the photographer. Okay, yeah. I uh, yeah, I had it backwards. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, anyway, you guys were uh, pretty uh, avid about photographs too. I followed you on Facebook and, and some beautiful pictures. Yeah. Um, we did. We actually ended up with a pretty good rate of photographing the birds. In the end, I think we have like 750 species that we ended up having photos of. Wow. So that's pretty good. So you missed uh, two? <laughs> that's yeah, crazy. Yeah. Yeah, and there were like two birds that are coated birds that we don't have photos of. And I actually took those off my list list at the end of the year. So I'm just counting 750 plus the one provisional. And that's a nice rounded number. The two birds were flesh-footed shearwater mm -hmm. in a pelagic trip off of California. We saw one and we're sure that's what it was. Yeah. But it was really fast and it was a flyby pretty far out. And we later found out by reading Alvaro's posts and stuff that there's actually a pink-footed shearwater that looks almost exactly like a flesh foot. It's a dark morph, and it's, oh, wow. it's extremely rare. And I decided, well, I'm just going to take that one off my list. The, the other one was a Tam Tamaulipas crow from South mm -hmm. Texas. We we saw that one. We never did get photos or anything, and it didn't get. We didn't we, we didn't it didn't hear it, and so we're sure that's what it was. It was photographed there about two days before, and. We saw it from a long distance, but I ended up taking that off. So you guys are pretty, uh, you hold yourselves to high standards. That's pretty impressive. Uh, so, yeah. uh, so when I met you in Washington, it looked like you guys are a pretty fabulous team that you each have your strengths and things you're especially, uh, 
good at. Uh, how would you describe each of your strengths in terms of doing a big year? Ruben, what would you say, uh, you know, what's, what do you add to the duo of brothers? Well, Victor has excellent hearing and I have zero hearing. It's like oh. all the warblers in the world could be singing above my head and I wouldn't hear them if they're mm -hmm. high frequency. So I can hear a great horned owl or I can hear, I, I can hear stuff that's loud and low and with a big voice. But I can, and so when you're out birding, Victor has the hearing. And whenever we're looking for any kind of small bird, he'll say he hears a chip note or something. And it's always him that finds it first by ear if it's something little. Oh. Well, on the other hand, I got dependent on my my eyesight and I don't I kind of ignore my hearing because it doesn't help me that much. And then I'm there on the spotting scope and I'm looking way out and I'll find the stuff flying. And usually it's me that'll find something flying. So, yeah, we work together pretty good as a team. That That's cool. Yeah. I think when we talked before, uh, you said you had done nine Christmas bird counts. You have been busy beavers down there in Tennessee. <laughs> uh, what, what are your favorite counts down there? My favorite count, of course is my personal count. It's one that we started about 10 years ago, my brother and I and a bunch of the locals here. And it's a top count almost every year in Tennessee. I mean, it was unheard of to have 130 species in Tennessee on one Christmas bird count in the middle of the winter before we started this count. So yeah, it's intensively planned and highly strategized. And we, we end up winning the state count, the, the high count every year, almost, almost. We have to compete, which makes it fun. But yeah, I just got done with the last Christmas bird count yesterday. I did nine of them. I spent about half the Christmas bird count period days doing Christmas bird counts. I do that a lot. I Good do for you. Kind of, What's yeah. the name of your count that you uh, that you coordinate? The Duck River Christmas bird count. It's called Duck, Duck River. River. Okay, yeah. I'll I'll find that uh, and uh, put a link to it. Cool, Duck River Christmas yeah. bird count. If I'm ever in Tennessee around the holidays, I'll have to check oh, that absolutely. out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you are you are my second Tennessee guest. I had uh, Michael Todd on uh, on uh, episode 124 a, a few months ago, and uh, oh. he is he is a super nice guy. When I was I did a Mississippi River trip this spring, driving from New Orleans up the up the Mississippi River, and uh, Michael was really helpful when I uh, st spent a couple of days in Tennessee. It was really Absolutely. I stayed I stayed in Memphis, and he was really helpful. Got me into. Uh, into oh what's the I'm blanking on the name of the big waterfowl spot down there Sherbert and waterfowl spot the bottoms Ensley Bottoms I think Ensley Bottoms that's and, it and yeah. also yeah. also a really nice road down by the river that was just full of uh, warblers and and uh, little flycatchers and pastorns it was Meme, great Meme and Shelby it was probably Meme and Shelby Forest yeah. that's where it was really really yeah. good spot that was maybe my favorite birding spot in Tennessee was that forest I had I really enjoyed that. Yeah, Mike Todd is an awesome birder. It, it's a privilege to bird with him. He's like the best birder in Tennessee. And he taught me most of what I know about birding. So yeah, he's a great guy. He is extraordinary. So uh, I'm going to get back to your big year. Uh, as you did your big year, what was your general strategy? Did you did you do, uh, you know, if I, I think if I was going to do a big year and I never will, uh, <laughs> other than county and that sort of thing, if I was going to do a big year, uh, I would think that early in the year, uh, you would be chasing winter rarities and picking off winter specialties. And then as the migration hit, you'd hit the migration places. I mean, you'd have a strategy, but in general, how would you summarize your strategy for the year? 
Um, yeah, uh, you, you got it right as far as, first off, you focus on immediately getting all the early January mega rarities. And then from there, we have it laid out with a plan, get the winter specialties at the Sac Simbog, and then have a route around the U.S. But always, at any time, priority is when a rare bird shows up, divert and get it immediately and then get back on the route. Exactly. What, uh, if I remember correctly, and I, I could be way off, wasn't the, the Rio Grande Valley spectacular last year in, in early January? Weren't there some really megas down there? Yeah, there were some really good birds. There was a blue mockingbird in New Mexico, and then mm -hmm. there was the social flycatcher in the Bat Falcon. And so those were all there right away at the start of January. But we focused on getting the stellar sea eagle and the northeastern rarities. There was um, northern lapwings. There was, of course, the, you know, the rare geese, barnacle geese and that stuff. So that was what we started the, the year out with. We actually traveled to the Northeast the day before our year started on December 31st. And so we were in position for the stellar sea eagle when the first sun shine cracked over the horizon on the January the 1st. So your first uh, first bird of the year was stellar sea eagle. Wow, that's uh, that's auspicious. Yeah. Uh, so you so you uh, wrapped up the northeast uh, winter rarities early. Did you uh, did you get dove key and some of those sorts of things up there? We did get dove. dove we didn't get that the first trip. the The first time that we were just there, maybe one day, just January the first. And the you like you mentioned the Rio Grande Valley specialties. You can't ignore those for long. And the weather was so much nicer. So yeah, we just wrapped up the really rare ones in the Northeast and headed for the Rio Grande Valley. I think we were down there by January the 3rd. Oh, so, wow. So you guys, you guys traveled. Did you just take turns driving? One would sleep and one would drive. I mean, I, you covered vast distances. Yeah. Yeah. You take turns. One sleeps, one drives, and you can basically go forever. I mean, you could, <laughs> we never had to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I remember when you visited me, I, uh, well, you visited when you were here and I saw you, you didn't visit me when you were here, you got the red flank blue tail and you had a pelagic arranged for like two or three days later or something like that. And you swooped up some of the winter specialties in Eastern Washington. And then you did the pelagic and those pelagics, they're, they're exhausting. I mean, they start at six in the morning, you're standing on your feet all day, at least for me, you know, after a pelagic, I'm pretty much washed out. Uh, and then you hopped in your car, you drove straight to Colorado. <laughs> yeah. Whenever, whenever I mentioned to Victor, like before the big year, I mentioned to Victor that I want to try and do a big year. Cause I, I don't think the lower 48 big years have really been done properly yet. I want to try it. He was like, well, he doesn't know because pelagic's a big thing for him. Cause he gets sicker than I do. And, and oh I do get sick sometimes. I don't get sick every time like he does. And we didn't know whether it's going to work or not, but I ended up convincing him that we're just going to do the most important pelagics and, and not take it too hard. And we decided to do all the medication and everything and see if it wouldn't work. And it ended up that the pelagic trips weren't nearly as bad as we had been dreading them to be. Victor did take a lot of medicine. He, he learned that you can do the ear patch thing. You just have to get a prescription and mm -hmm. that actually does work. To some extent, it doesn't completely cure everything. You still feel a little bit bad, but pelagic trips was a big part of, of what we improved on this year over the other. We did a lot of pelagic trips. Yeah. 
pelagic chirps are, are wonderful and horrible at the same time for me. You know, I, yeah. I, I have to fight seasickness too. Although I just got back from Antarctica, had a fabulous oh. trip, you know, 19 days on a, on a boat. And uh, I did not get seasick the whole trip. I got COVID on the trip, but I didn't get seasick oh. on the trip. Uh, so it was, I was so pleased about that because I have been really sick in oh. the past. Uh, and we came back on a, through the Drake Passage, which can be pretty wild. And it was uh-huh. a seven meter seas and the boats just going all over the place. You know, you had to have a hand on something every minute. And it was, it was like so crazy and so exciting and so scary that I didn't even think about getting sick. <laughs> wow. That makes me jealous that you got to go to Antarctica. That's a big bucket list thing for me. But yeah, back to the big year and uh, pelagic trips. That was, like Ruben said, probably our most successful part of our year. We did really well on pelagics. And we ended up being at sea 32 days. Oh, wow. So that's, uh, I would call that quite a lot of pelagic trips. (laughs) That's that's quite a lot. Yeah, that's a month of the year. What are your favorite pelagics of of the, I mean, yeah, I think of this, you know, three or four major areas that do pelagics. What, What were your favorite pelagic trips of the year? I would have to say probably San Diego. Um, we went for all of their scheduled trips in July, August, and September. We didn't do the October one. And the best one, like probably the most epic pelagic trip I've ever been on, was their September trip. We just had like everything, all the boobies. We had a, we got a um, wedge-tailed shearwater. We got Townsend's Storm Petrol. We got Lee's Storm Petrol. Just, just crazy what all we got on that one trip. Yeah, that is a fabulous trip. Uh, if you ever get a chance to, you want to do a easy peasy, wonderful uh, pelagic trip, take the searcher trip out of there. It's a five day pelagic trip out of San Diego. And it is just, it's like uh, pelagic trips for uh, the luxury cruise type person. And it's pretty affordable. It's it's a really good trip. Yeah, We knew about that one. And we tried to get on that, but you really have to book that one at least two years ahead. You Sometimes do. three years. Yeah. And we didn't do that. And so we just simply couldn't get on. Yeah. I, we, I we, it wouldn't be reasonable doing short notice. I've done it twice. And my best birding buddy and I did it this, this year and mm-hmm. it was so freaking cool. Oh, I mean, it's probably yeah. not, not the most efficient way to get those birds, but it's really pretty cool. If you're going to do a big year and you know it, three years ahead, definitely book that one and book it anyway, because you can always sell your ticket to someone else in the next three years. There's always people want to go. And oh, can, so, there's yeah. a waiting list for that trip. Always. Yeah. Cause it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's a pretty big boat, like a 90 some foot boat. And there are only maybe 18 guests or 20 guests, something like that. It's a really uh-huh. pretty uh, small group with four fabulous Todd McGrath and the guides are spectacular. It's uh, uh-huh. it's really cool. Anyway, my kind of pelagic trip right there. <laughs> yep. Yeah, we joke, um, we joke with Todd McGrath that we're going to find the boat the night before and stow on board somewhere. We were that desperate to get on. But um, it turns out we only missed one bird on our year that they had, which was the wedge rump shear, uh, not shear water, storm petrol, the wedge rump storm petrol. Yeah. So we would have got another bird. Well, you might have. It was not everybody on that boat got that bird. I can tell you it was uh, it was uh, it was a it was getting dark. Uh, It was just at the very end of the day. And there was one uh, white rumped uh, type storm petrol among a big uh, group of storm petrels and 
it, it was recognized by a photograph well after, you know, a minute or two after it was seen. And then we all tried to look at for it. And, and by then it was really far away. And, you know, it was, I, I didn't list it. I couldn't say I saw it. So anyway, yeah. Okay. So it was, even if you're on the trip, it was not a gimme. That makes me feel better. Yeah. Good. Uh, so give me maybe your top five birds of the year. What would you say? Would you, Victor, what were your top five birds of the year? Well, right off the bat, I would say stellar sea eagle, fan-tailed warbler. Um, I don't. I didn't really compile a list. Uh, the northern lapwing, the southern lapwing, probably would be on there. Yeah, uh, maybe Ruben has some more input. I didn't really compile a list. Off the no, top I, I just yeah, just just roof brain chatter. What would you say? What would you say, Ruben? I definitely add the pine flycatcher. And the nutting flycatcher. I just love flycatchers. I'm biased toward flycatchers. But yeah, those two were both lifers for me. And I would definitely have those on there. And the bat falcon, you know, the bat falcon. The oh, yeah. That's a famous bird. That would have to be on it. So in terms of photo opportunities, uh, uh, you guys took a lot of pictures. Uh, what were some of your favorite pictures from the trip? Um, yeah, I'd say um, one of my favorites. I forgot the blue mockingbird as a favorite. That was a big one for me. That one had been high on my most wanted list for a long time. But um, yeah, I got photos of, like Ruben said, pretty much everything. And, uh, you know, I like photos of everything. So I didn't like pick out photos. This one's more favorite than that one. But of all the, we were photographing all the rarities, code three, four, and five. Sure. That was the idea. And we missed two, like Ruben said, but we got basically got photos of all the rest. So I valued all of them. Like I did, it, they were all special to me. Very cool. Uh, so I had I made myself a, a list of things to ask you. If you had uh, if you had a do over and it was a strategic thing or a bird you wish you'd chase that you decided not to, or maybe a bird you chased that you shouldn't have, what would be what would be your do over on the trip? What uh, what was your biggest goof up? Um, one of the things that really the, that I regret, which we probably couldn't have changed anyway, was we had a pelagic trip scheduled out of New Jersey. And the Marsh Harrier showed up up uh, north of us. And it was a choice of giving up our pelagic trip, which was our only chance for white-faced storm petrel, or go for the Harrier. And it was a tough decision, but we had we, we were we were on a budget. We don't have unlimited money. So we decided we can't give up our, our pelagic trip to go for the Marsh Harrier. So we go mm -hmm. for the pelagic trip. We got white-faced storm petrel. We got a bonus Bermuda petrel, which was a first state record for New Jersey. So it was a hell of a trip. But that day, all day, the Marsh Harrier was seen. And then we drove all night and we're at his spot the next morning. And it had been there for three days, but it was never seen again there. So we missed it because of the trip. So you substituted uh, a bonus bird at sea for one you could have gotten on land. Hey, that's that's a reasonable trade-off. Problem is we already had Bermuda petrol. And oh. we um, we ended up missing the Marsh Harrier, which would be a lifer for us. So it. It was a little bit sad, but the, the, the white-faced storm petrel was also a lifer. We'd actually never done that before, so we yeah. can't complain. Yeah, yeah. You, you can't be two places at once, that's for sure. Uh, what would you say the most unexpected bird that showed up in the U.S.? You've, you've listed some pretty fabulous megas. What would you say was the, the bird you got that you never imagined you'd see? Ruben, this one's on you. I want, hey, I wanted to say, whenever you asked about some trip that we planned bad or that right. we messed up. Yeah. What comes to mind for me is a trip that I planned that went messed up pretty badly on it. Um, 
Well, before the year started, way early in the year, the McQuaids told us that there's going to be a horned puffin on an island in Washington, and it's there every summer, and you have to book way ahead, get um, get a charter or something, yeah. or book yourself on one of the regularly, tri- regular. well, anyways, I didn't really believe it would be there to start with, and so, we, of course, we didn't plan anything ahead. I'm horrible with logistics. I mean, I love birding logistics, but travel logistics, I hate that, and I don't I make Victor do it, and and I don't ever get anything right on traveling logistics. But then, of course, we messed around for a long time. Sure enough, it popped up, and so we quickly tried to. I think you told us that we have to be on one of those. You actually gave us some of the information that which trip we have to be on. Right. But we didn't do it until they were all booked. When we called, of course, everything was booked. All the charters were booked for weeks ahead, and so. I had this bright idea that we would drive to Washington. We would buy two kayaks and we would kayak out. To the oh, my island. word. There's no reason not to. I told Victor, Victor said it might be stupid, but I said, well, it would make really good video um, YouTube footage for him. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to buy kayaks. And we, so we drove all the way out there to Washington. We didn't really have any other targets at that time because it was a slow time of the year. Right. But it was getting a little late. I think it was in mid-August or something. Yeah. And the day we got up there, the water was beautiful and we didn't have everything ready yet. So we decided, well, the forecast is a little better for Monday, which was two days later. So we were going to wait until Monday until we have calm weather. We didn't. We were a little worried about the waves out there, but we didn't really know how bad it actually was at the time. But anyway, I think we could have done it that day, but we didn't. And then come Monday, the waves were just horrible. We took our kayaks down there. We tried to launch them. And it was going to be only about maybe five miles of kayaking. But mm-hmm. the waves were so bad that we literally could not launch our kayaks. There were white, white caps were breaking all over our feet. And we just didn't launch them. We just took our kayaks back to Walmart and we never used them. But anyway, <laughs> that trip, that wasn't the end of the bad luck that trip. We were, next, the next target was in San Diego. There was a gray-tailed tattler. And so we drove down there overnight. We decided, well, we're going to we're going to just scratch the weather up here. We don't think it's going to be good enough to ever do the kayaking. So we drove overnight down to San Diego and I was sleeping and Victor was driving. We were on I-5 headed south. And first thing I knew in the middle of the night was this loud boom. And the car like jumped. It literally shook the whole car. And and I had no idea what happened. And Victor pulled over and the car was still functional. But Victor pulled over because it was making some kind of noises up front. And what happened is there was something big in the middle of the road and it was big and dark and Victor didn't see it Mm -hmm. and hit it. And it tore off a whole bunch of the bumper and made holes in the radiator. And we were like, goodness, bummer. We were really screwed bad. But we looked at it a while and we tried to patch things up a little bit. And we figured out that we could refill the radiator with water Mm -hmm. every couple like every hour, if we pull over and refill the radiator with water, we could keep going. So we still made it to San Diego for the Great Tail Tadler and a pelagic trip. So it turned out okay. It wasn't nearly as bad as it might have been. But that wow. was one of my my worst planned trips, all all, yeah. all told. So. Well, well, I I live here and have made I think three different efforts at that. Uh, horned puffin and am 0 for 3. It's even if you get on one of the scheduled trips, it's at best a 50-50 thing, even even at the right time of year. So yeah, it's never a gimme. It's mm-hmm. never, yeah. I, I have that from Alaska and I'm gonna have to settle for that until maybe next year. Who knows? 
you you must have met lots of people. You went to a lot of stakeouts, and so every time there's a stakeout, yeah, you know, I I call it the the spotting scope sign or the or the birder sign. That when you get there, if everybody's uh on their scope, looking in the same direction, that's a good sign. If everybody's standing around chatting, that's a bad sign. <laughs> and uh, and so so, what were some of your favorite people experiences of the trip? Uh, people you met that you said, "Gosh, that was I really enjoyed meeting so and so." For me, probably one of my coolest experiences was we were on a repo cruise in the spring and we got to see our lifer Murphy's petrol while standing beside Ross Gallardi, who was also seeing his lifer Murphy's petrol, but it was his 7,000th life bird. Very cool. These big world listers, they are something. Yeah, that's fun. Your repositioning cruise. How what did you think of that? I've done one repositioning cruise and it's not my favorite type of birding by far. Actually, for me, I actually love them. As long as the birding is good, and it seems like out there in the Pacific Ocean, birding is always good. Food is great. Um, it's a lot of hours. A lot of you've really got to be devoted to sticking to deck like glue. But I really enjoy them because the the ship is steady, and you don't have to worry about getting sick, which that's the big one for me. That's but nice. For, yeah, for photographers, they're not great. You need a smaller boat to get close for great photos. Photo ops are great. Usually not great these days since all of the Cruise ships have shut down the front end where you can't get in the bow, where the birds cut the bow. So you usually are looking out from the middle or back in the back end. So that really kills photography. Yeah. For me, it's just the the hours of standing on the deck, staring out at birds that are really a long ways off. Kind of not as not as satisfying, but they are. The food is good and the platform is a lot more stable than small boats for people get sick. So those are you guys are good. You guys uh you are the cup half full type people. I like that. You know, you find the good side of almost everything. That's great. <laughs> good. I, I, I think I saw on one of your eBird profiles that, that you have a family business. What, what do you do for a day job? Um, we do construction and we actually own our own business and we work together on it so we can get a job. We do a lot of like barns and stuff, not so much houses because we like smaller, shorter duration jobs. Mm -hmm. And it pays really well. So we can do a job, finish it up, have no obligations and take off. We actually did on the slow times of the year, we came home and we worked part time. Um, we didn't really tell people we were working at, during our big year, but we did work to help pay for things. So, yeah, that's what we do. OK, so the two of you, it's a, it's a, a small brother and brother construction business. Very cool. Uh, and barns. I, my uh, my uh, partner, Marion, she is an old barn fanatic. If we can't drive by an old barn without stopping to take a picture. So she would uh, she would like that you build barns, you know, and a hundred years from now, if, if she was still around, she'd be taking pictures of some of them, I'm sure. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. So if you, do you guys see any big years in your future? Or are you just in the recovery mode right now? Um, if there's any big years, it'll probably be me making Victor do it, but no, I don't, I don't think so. Not any real big years. Um, every year in Tennessee, I do all the, I do all the birding possible in Tennessee. I don't miss shorebird migration. I'm always out on the mud flats. I do all the Christmas bird counts, all the breeding bird surveys in there. So every year actually ends up being a big year and I see a lot of birds, but as far as just I don't have any records that I see that I even want to try to break. And I don't think I'll be doing any other big years except just the spontaneous ones that happen on their own. The, um, 
One thing I wanted to mention, the 2017 numbers, that was mm -hmm. our first big year. We ended up calling that a big year. We hadn't even planned on doing a big year. But I'm not sure the numbers were quite as high as you gave us credit for. I'd have to check, but I think it was more like 762 or something rather than 777. Okay, yeah, eBird can yeah. eBird can look a little goofy. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. That's exactly what it was. eBird had some exotics on it. Okay. And some of those exotics are now countable. Some aren't. I'd have to do the arithmetic. Yeah, doesn't but matter. It's a, it's a hell of a year, no matter how you count it. <laughs> I convinced Victor to do that year. And I had to promise him we're not doing a big year before it started because he said he doesn't want to do a big year. And I was like, well, I had this Jerry Cooper guide. Jerry Cooper wrote a guide about doing, seeing all the species you can in the ABA area. And he promised that you could see 650 plus species if you do these 12 trips. And we always, when we were growing up, I had this little Peterson, Peterson field guide and it had, I don't know, it has maybe 650 or 700 species in it. And I always wanted to see them. And then this Jerry Cooper guide promised that we could see most of them by doing these trips. And that was all we wanted to do is see the birds. And we never intended to even try to beat Weigel's record, which of course we didn't. He did his big year right. And he did more intensively. And we just did the fun trips that year. So it was a fun year. And we ended up calling it a big year because we saw a lot of species. I love that book. That Jerry Cooper's book has been my, uh, you know, my friend and my, I, we, we've planned many a trip around that book. It is a fabulous uh -huh. resource. Yeah. It's not uh -huh. new. So it's not quite current. I wish, I wish it would get redone, but yeah, it's a great book. Somebody needs to update it. Yeah. I, yeah, I know, yeah. I know the two people to do it. <laughs> They've been everywhere. <laughs> Uh, I was going to add to what Ruben said. Um, first of all, yeah, he promised um, I didn't want to do a big year before. And he promised me that we wouldn't um, whatever. That's true. But I'm glad he got me into it. I enjoyed it once we did it. Um, the idea that I didn't want to do it, I thought it was very stressful, which when you read other people's big years, they got depressed and stressed and it was a big deal. I didn't want it to, to lose sight of the actual enjoying the purity of enjoying the birds for what they are and getting into a competition where you're stressed, you're not having fun. And so he promised me if we're ever not having fun, we'll just quit, that we won't get into that. And we never did. And it was fun the whole way through. Well, that is great to hear. I have to say it, the grind would get me down, I think, but uh, you guys seem to have seriously good energy. Do you have any advice for people who want to do a big year other than have fun? <laughs> I would, my advice, if you want to break the lower 48 big year that we did this year, you can probably do it fairly easily, but what you need to do, and I don't know if anybody wants to do that or not, but what you need to do is you need to do a little bit better of a job at the pelagic species than we did. And it's different from an ABA big year as because you don't go to Alaska and wait for rarities. You don't have that option. You fill in by doing pelagic birds and of course, try to fill in everything else too, but Book all the pelagics off of Hatteras with Brian and Kate, because if you don't book one day and you book 10, 10, 10 days and don't do one, the one day they're going to have European storm petrol and they're going to have Bermuda petrol that day that you don't go. So just go all of them and San Diego, go all of them. And one thing that we did not do, we didn't do the Northwest as well as we should have. And we ended up missing short-tailed albatross and we ended up missing model petrol. Okay. Well, modeled is tough. Modeled is yeah. really, really tough. Uh, but short-tailed these days, short-tailed, it's that short-tailed uh, albatross. It's a great story. The recovery of that. I mean, you know, 20 years ago, you never, 
ever saw those birds. And now I'd seen them twice and, and it's, uh -huh. you know, you have a reasonable chance at them on, on uh -huh. almost year round. So it's, I mean, you know, so one in 10, maybe a one in 20 chance on a pelagic yeah. trip, but, but it's still, it's, it's not nothing, which it used to be. They've really made a comeback. Yeah. We couldn't find any repo cruises for the right time frame to be out there. And then the one we had, one trip we had out of Oregon got canceled because of weather. And so we never had any good shot at that, but you yeah. can't really control all that. But, but pelagic trips is where it's at. You want to break it. Yeah. Sounds, sounds like a good advice uh, for anyone who is, in my opinion, insane enough to try to break this record <laughs> that you guys set, which seems like a seriously high mark. I mean, for, for perspective, I think the, the record had been set the year before and it was something like 726, which is, you know, that's 25 birds less than you guys saw, 24 or 6, depending on how you count it. That's wow. That's, I yeah. mean, you just break the record. You, I mean, I, I think you broke the record like in September or October or something like that. It was. Yeah, yeah. I think it might have been the end of July, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah, I know it was early. <laughs> so we had all that extra time to play with. And so, yeah, we we had a good time and we saw a lot of birds. It was yeah. a lot of fun, actually. Well, I am glad to hear that you guys had fun. You certainly seem to be having fun the one time I met you. So, hey, thanks for doing this with me. I know it was a little bit outside your comfort zone, but you have been stars. Really nice job with this podcast today. I really appreciate it. I'm going to I'm gonna close with uh, letting people, if people wanted to get a hold of you, what would be the best way to do that? We're on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I'm Facebook on Facebook and Instagram is perfect. What are your Facebook handles? Ruben, what's your Facebook handle? My name is Ruben Stoll on Facebook, and you can leave me a message and hope that I come in from birding and maybe see it. Uh, I probably will eventually, but don't expect to get me right now. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> good to know. Victor, how about you? Um, yeah, I'm just on Facebook as Victor Stoll, S-T-O-L-L. -L. Okay. Well, I will tell people to give you a Facebook message if they want to get a hold of you, and uh, you is anyone going to write this whole up as a trip report or anything like that? So people will kind of be able to hear your year's story. We don't have any plans of writing a book, but we have, we actually have some real crazy stories that we didn't get into with you. There's the time the alligator, um, well, there was an alligator that tried to eat me in Florida two years ago and we were down there this year and um, Ruben actually went swimming with the alligator and I got nervous and flashed and it was coming to get him. I barely saved his life. And, we went through a bad tornado in South Dakota. We had a mouse in our trunk that ate all our food. We had some experiences we didn't get. Okay. Into, okay. Well, well, there is no time <laughs> limit on this. I want to hear a couple of those experiences. Those sound <laughs> the alligator. What's with that? Well, um, in 2020, November of 2020, um, Ross Gillardi found a ruddy quail dove in Florida. And we rushed down there to chase it. And we were stinky, dirty, had been working. We, we we'd, um, missed the quail dove. And we needed a bath really bad. And Ruben didn't want to take, use the beach showers there in Key West. And so we ended up driving inland and finding a pool. And Ruben went first, took a bath in the pool. He attracted a pretty big alligator that was hungry. He gets out. And then I was showing some other people a black-faced grass quit. So I was being helpful to someone else. When I got there, there was a gator right at the edge waiting. And it was seven or eight foot. And I figured, well, I weigh more than it. It's probably no threat. And so I jumped in. And... I've, I learned a valuable lesson that day. You don't trust an alligator. Um, it immediately attacked me and latched onto my arm. And um, you know how they twist and try to tear your arm off? 
I no, I don't. To, but I, <laughs> I was able to get my arm free, but I had to rip it free. So I had cuts like slashes to the bone, both top and bottom. Oh, it my grabbed word. my left arm kind of long ways with its jaw. And at that point, um, it, I grabbed it around the middle to restrain it because it was trying to eat me. Yeah. And I could only hold it so long. I mean, its scales were really rough. I didn't have anything but shorts on and it was ripping up my chest. So finally, I kind of threw it. I thought it was going to leave and it just turned and came at me again. And by that time, I was getting pissed. So I hit it on the head as hard as I could with my right fist, hard enough to stun it. And so it's kind of like shaking its head, trying to figure out what just hit it. And I'm trying to get out, but there was kind of a steep, rocky bank. And I was all ripped up, so I couldn't get up the bank. And, of course, Ruben's up there laughing. I'm just thankful he he wasn't videoing. If he would have thought of it, he would have videoed the whole thing. Well, you guys would be YouTube stars. You'd be rich. <laughs> yeah, that would have been gone viral. But eventually I was able to communicate to him that I'm in bad shape and I need help. So he helped me up. In all fairness, Ruben hadn't known at that point that I um, had been bitten. He didn't see that part. And so he helped me get out and my arm uh, healed up really fast. But uh, to the bigger part of that story, we were in the same area in Florida and Ruben wanted a bath. And he asked me, we'll go swimming in the same place. And I'm like, I'm not stupid enough to go to the same place ever again. I won't swim in there. Yeah. So he's like, well, he will. And it was dark. And so he goes over there in the dark and he was he was like splashing the edge. He didn't go like out in the middle of the pool. He was staying on the edge, but I had a real bad feeling. I didn't think he should do it. So I brought a flashlight and I flashed and he had said it was too cold for gators. It was in the middle of the winter. So I flashed and the gator was now like two or three feet longer because it really did well on my arm, I guess. My arm yeah. must be really real nutritious. But anyway, it was coming at him without making a ripple and it was quite close attacking. And he hadn't seen it. So if I hadn't gone and flashed, it would have probably got him and killed him. Oh, so. my word. Okay. <laughs> Let's switch from alligators to mice. <laughs> you had mice in your trunk. Yeah. Um, so we had already talked about living in the car. And yeah. so uh, we had this mouse that moved in. And I went to Aldi's and got like $200 worth of expensive snacks so that we wouldn't have to stop. We could just live in the car and eat. Right. Because obviously our strategy was never stop. Drive all night, bird all day, on and on and on. Just full. That's how we were able to get as many birds as we did is because we did run an insane schedule, like a ridiculous schedule. But this mouse realized that the the car is cozy and comfortable and that there's a big container of food in the trunk. And so he moved in and he chewed into the food and I guess somehow we were out birding a long time. I think it was actually while we were dipping on a common red shank in Michigan, which was already painful. And that mouse chewed in and he chewed into every food container and pooped and peed on the food that was in there. He couldn't eat it all because it's too Ugh. much, but he was able to chew in and poop on and ruin everything. And so that was really depressing. Uh, we couldn't figure out how to get rid of that mouse. But then one day it was in the actually in the ceiling of the car between the top and the lining. And oh, I heard yeah. it up there. So Reuben had left birding faster than me. Sometimes I get behind and I was quiet and the mouse thought we were gone. And so he was chewing up there and I was so mad. I punched as hard as I could up into the ceiling and we never heard the mouse again. So I think <laughs> we did smell bad, but we didn't have the problem with mice after that. <laughs> so you got the mouse through the ceiling of the car, you guys attacking, punching out. So you've punched an alligator and you've punched a mouse. You're uh, <laughs> yeah. anything in between that you punched the, this year. <laughs> Well, there was times I felt like punching Reuben, but overall we got along quite well. <laughs> and you talked about some bad weather, a tornado or something? Actually, I called it a tornado, but we found out later that it was 105 miles an hour straight line winds in South Dakota. 
And we pulled over and there was like fields, all the debris from fields and stuff were blowing over the road and we couldn't see anything. And so we just parked. But it turned out there was hundreds of vehicles blown off the road. There was hundreds of, of houses destroyed. It was really bad. And we were stuck in this mess for hours trying to rush out west. We were actually chasing, I think, a Gargany in Montana at the time. Mm-hmm. And there was just a disaster of everything. Trucks turned over. All the roads were closed for like a day. Ooh. And we were late. Gargany had been gone a day when we got there. But So you missed Gargany due to a non-tornado, really hard wind. <laughs> But we we did end up getting a Gargany in New Jersey later. So oh, that was well, wow, good for you. So no, no miss there. Well, it sounds like quite an adventure. I have to say you guys should uh, you should either write a book or maybe just a series of uh, articles or something about uh, some adventures of the trip. It sounds like it would be a pretty interesting story. The uh, Stoll brothers on the road or something like that. <laughs> Anyway, hey, guys, thanks so much for doing this with me. I really appreciate it. And if you're ever uh, in the Northwest again, uh, definitely reach out. I've got a spare bedroom and would love to see you guys again. Take care. Thanks a lot for letting us spend the night at your house. Oh, you're more than welcome. More than welcome. Take care. Nice hearing from you, Ed. Great hearing from you, Ed. Thanks a lot. Good to see you guys. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, that wraps up the Bird Banner podcast number 145 with Victor and Ruben Stahl. What a year. You can find them on eBird by looking for the top 100 in the Explorer section for the lower 48 region for 2022 or on Facebook. I'll put links in the podcast notes and on the blog post on birdbanner.com that I put up to accompany each episode to the Facebook feeds. If you get a chance to visit their Facebook pages, congratulate them on the spectacular 2022 Lower 48 Big Year. Watch for an upcoming episode with another big-time birding record holder. Peter Kastner, who I met on my Antarctica trip, has seen more species of birds in the world than any living human being. He has over 9,700 species of birds seen in the world. Just kind of mind-blowing. Thanks for listening. Until next time, good birding and good day. (laughs) 